0: We're now approaching the end of Ireland's decade of centenaries. Among the many institutions that have played a part in those centenary events, the military archives has been especially prominent. The military archives are custodians of one of the state's flagship projects, the Military Service Pensions Collection, as well as the Bureau of Military History, 1913 to 1921, the Collins Papers, the 1922 Army Census, early Department of Defence records and much, much more. While many people know about and indeed have used these collections, few know The history of the military archives as an institution. That is now being corrected, thankfully. I'm joined by Commandant Daniel Iottis, Director of the military archives and author of a new history of those archives. Daniel very welcome back to The History Show. Thanks very much,
1: Miles, great Um, to be here.
0: Tell us a little bit, uh, uh, I mean I was fascinated reading in the introduction, for example, uh, about your own path to becoming director of the military archives and I want you to talk a little bit about that because it was seen in career terms in the army, as
1: something of a purgatory posting, wasn't it? It was, yeah. As I say in the introduction, it was, it was kind of a humorous thing that we have that Steve McGowan, my predecessor, was known as the guy who'd opted out of his career for a long time when he went to the military archives first. It was, and I think the reason for that, it, it goes right back to the initial establishment of the archives, that it was something that was dealt with on an ad hoc basis. It was, the importance of it was kind of understood, but when something more important came along, the custodians and the people in charge were, were tasked elsewhere. My journey, how I ended up there um, was by chance more so than anything else. Uh, I joined the army in 2002, commissioned in 2004. Between 2004 and 2015 I served in various posts at home and overseas, Kosovo, Lebanon, a few other places around, around Ireland. Then in 2015 to be quite honest I was looking for I was looking for a bit of a change. I suppose it was a bit short-sighted and I was looking outside but you know, somebody said to me, gave me good advice and said, look, have a look, you know, within the organisation. And that's one thing I will say about the Defence Force is it's great for lateral movement. And quite, I suppose, coincidentally or, or serendipitously, an advertisement went up for staff officer, which is deputy director at the military archives. I said, you know what, I'll, I'll give that a pop. And uh, I got it. I ended up at the military archives from, I think it was May 2015. I started Later that year in September, I undertook the Masters in Archives and Records Management, returned in 2016 after the course, took over as Deputy Director. 2017, Steve McCone moved on. He moved on to the cadet school, so he certainly hadn't um, opted Destroyed out of his career. Destroyed his career. He's onward and upward. I think he's, um, he'll be promoted to Lieutenant Colonel soon, actually, so he's doing really well. And I've been there since. But you've also been there at a time, a very, very interesting time for the archives, a
0: time when, you know, suddenly... Everybody in Ireland is aware of the archives and so many uh, hundreds, thousands of people would have actually used the facilities of the archives online. So good time to to write a book about the archives, but you didn't want it to be a reference book on how to use the Bureau of Military History collection, how to use the the, the military services pension collection. This is a narrative. This is how the archives developed to the point where they are today, isn't it?
1: It is. Um, I suppose the book itself, it was a, I suppose a labour of love, really. I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but that's what it was. Um, I don't consider myself a historian, and it's something, as an archivist, I'm always very keen to delineate and advocate for our profession, because very much for a long time within the Defence Forces, and I think it still is to an extent, and even in wider society, there's this conflation of the archivist and the historian. We're not the same things. We're separate, separate professions, even though kind of... Uh, you know, inter- so one is dependent on the other. It is, yeah, and it's a reciprocal thing. And it's not even so much as, you know, in the past the archivist was seen as, you know, the, the handmaiden to historians, to use one quote, or the, the hewers of wood and drawers of water. So it is very much, I suppose, two, two separate. I suppose it's a bit more maybe symbiotic is the, the word you'd use. But, um, no, I wanted to tell the story of the institution. and I like to write. I suppose I consider myself more a writer than a historian. And to tell this story, I use the medium of... You know historical sources, but I also enjoy writing articles and and you know commentary pieces and essays and things like that as well and I'm publishing them around the place. But first of all, I wanted to tell this story because what I noticed as soon as I got to the military archives was first of all the passion of the people involved who drove this thing forward, but also how far back that history went. and it goes all the way back to 1924 to MJ Costello. I suppose a precursor to it was the work of Pierce Beasley. So really, I suppose what I wanted to do was write the story of the institution and the people who made it what it was. At the same time, I wanted to write something that would appeal to my profession as well, to archivists. So while I suppose on the main level, this is a story and it's an interesting, well, I think it's an interesting story anyway. This is also something that professional archivists can look at with their archival hat on and they can say, oh, this is what the military archives was doing in the 1920s. And they can say, yes, well, you know, within wider archival literature, we know that this was a time when you know, archival collections were driven by future historical anticipated trends because it
0: was it was not a given yeah. that the archive was going to survive. There are certain there are discontinuities in in this story, which we will will mm-hmm. come to as we as we go through it. Um, you mentioned Beasley. Start start with with Beasley and his involvement. Beasley would be would have been one of the great propagandists of the of the War of Independence period, and then uh, and then subsequently. So, how does he get involved in the archives? What does he do there?
1: Yeah, so the seeds were really planted by Pierce Beasley, who, of course, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will know, had been director of publicity in the, in the IRA and then also in the, the National Army. So his close friend and comrade, uh, Michael Collins, is killed in August 1922. And soon afterwards, Beasley is appointed to write the official biography. As part of this, as part of his research and his project, he got the assistance of a captain, J.J. Burke. And as part of the research and the work they were doing, Burke was collecting records from the Civil War period. Now, after the Civil War, Beasley is still working away in the book. He writes to the Chief of Staff and asks for the establishment of a temporary war records office so he could consolidate all this work and make it available for the future. And he had the foresight to tell the Chief of Staff that the reason for this was, you know, to document the history of uh, Oglina Heron from the Volunteers through the War of Independence to the Civil War to the present time as it was then. Unfortunately, because of the huge demobilisation that was going on post-Civil War, the Chief of Staff you know, couldn't sanction it. Beasley was disappointed, of course. He he kind of felt that this was kind of a waste of all the work he and Burke had been doing. He retired from the army, got his pension, went off and he finished writing his biography of Collins by himself, but his, his war records office didn't come to anything. It was 1924, though, that um, you know there was still a requirement for this kind of facility within the organisation. And this was... Very much driven by the 1923 Army Pensions Act and the 1924 Military Service Pensions Act, which provided for pensions for people who'd served during the revolutionary period and compensation for injuries and for dependents and, and that as well. So because of this, there was a need to identify and verify pre true service. And how do you do that with something that was a guerrilla organisation which doesn't keep for obvious reasons in-depth records of, of their membership and what they're doing. So the military archives was established by another revolutionary veteran somebody who'd served under Pierce Beasley actually M.J. Costello. It was established as part of the intelligence branch because Costello was director of intelligence at that time and they were also responsible for records within the organisation. So he tasked a Captain Alphonsus Blake and a civilian clerk called Thomas Galvin with looking after this archive section. It also kind of looked after a parallel uh, responsibility at the same time, and that was kind of collecting material that would, again, as as Beasley identified, which would document the history and the evolution of the army from its revolutionary beginnings up until the early 1920s as well. And this, I suppose, was due to the fact that one of the big collections they had at that time was the Kilmainham Papers, which were found in a building in, in GHQ there at, at Park Gate Street. Um, they also had the civil war records they'd inherited from Beasley as well.
0: Now, we talked about discontinuities. Mm. One of those is a very active uh, discontinuity. And that's something uh, that happens in 1932 called the Burn Order. That sounds pretty ominous. Mm. Explain that to me.
1: Yeah, so I suppose from 26, when when Blake and Galvin had retired from the army, the Yarkers was just left to kind of... Operate under its own steam and it was kind of more or less neglected, to be honest. Throughout this time, the Chief of Staff was petitioning the Cummins and Ale government for an official establishment of the military archives, to have it officially recognised as a state institution. It never came. And that was then, I suppose, bookended with the tragic event of the Bourne Order of 1932. So as Cummins and Ale were coming out of power and they knew Finna Fall, their previous civil war adversaries were coming to take over power desmond fitzgerald the minister for defence issued the burn order which ordered the, the destruction by fire of records concerning you know intelligence reports secret service vouchers details of executions, firing parties and that from the Civil War period as well. Massive amount of very valuable documentation destroyed by fire. Uh, Lee Marcher, who was the Director of Intelligence at the time, did attempt over the couple of days he had between the order being issued and it being executed to catalogue as many of the records as possible. From a very practical sense, you need that to keep your, your records management system working. But unfortunately, he didn't have enough time. And the result is that, you know, one of the most, I suppose, debated and contested areas of Ireland's history, even today, you know, civil war executions, we don't have records for. We've lost a lot of very valuable records. So
0: not a lot, I mean, that's horrendous, but not long after the Burn Order, there was an attempt to create something called the Anglo-Irish Conflict Mm. Project, which was a precursor to future initiatives. It sounds like a sort of a, a, Mm. a, a swaddling clothes version of the Bureau of Military History. Tell me briefly about that project. So
1: 1932, Fianna Fáil come to power, and you see a kind of, I suppose, a broader interest and acknowledgement of the need to start documenting the history of the revolutionary period during that time. So 1933, Colonel E.V. O'Carroll, Eamon Vincent O'Carroll, who had been a commander in the 5th Northern Division during the War of Independence, he instigates the Anglo-Irish Conflict Project. What this aimed to do was gather testimonies from a very specific set of people. They were serving officers with pre-truce experience. Now, this had the endorsement not only of the Chief of Staff, but also of Eamon de Valera as President of the Executive Council of Dáil Éireann. He was assisted by his Captain, later Commandant, later Lieutenant Colonel Niall Charles Harrington, who was also famous as a historian and author and broadcaster himself. However, the people he wrote to were very reluctant to put down on paper their experiences. And I suppose this can really be put down to the fact that it was still you know, very close. It was definitely in living memory but it was still a little bit raw. You didn't have that distance of time that you had with the Bureau of Military History in the mid to late 40s into the 50s as well. But um, it was an attempt. It, It reflected wider cultural trends within the country as well but also I think it reflects a kind of a certain bias that archives had at that time where it was only serving officers, not even enlisted personnel, serving officers with pre truce experience. So, in one way, it was progressive, you know, within the context of its time. But I suppose within the broader context, it was, you know, we can see certain biases. Mm looking back as archivists. Yeah,
0: probably a a bit early and in the same way Mm. the Bureau of Military History comes just in time before memories Mm. start to fade as well. Just about, yeah. We'll come to that. Um, The period from the late 30s to the mid-70s was a, a time of stagnation for the archives Even though you had some pretty impressive figures who were involved, J.J. O'Connell, Ginger O'Connell, a very, very senior figure in the War of Independence and uh,
1: particularly in the Civil War. So what happened to the archive during those decades? So 1935, we see the first official appointment of an officer in charge of the military archives. So, um, you know, without going into too much detail, within the military, every appointment, every job has a rank marked beside it. And if the appointment doesn't exist, you know, it it doesn't exist. So this was the first time that on the official establishment officer in charge, military archives existed. And the man who filled the role was Colonel J.J. Ginger O'Connell. O'Connell, of course, had um, a lot of, of, you know, he really had great Republican credentials, director of training, at one time assistant chief of staff. In GHQ of the the IRA, kidnapped before the burning of the four courts. He was he was um, <laughs> deputy chief of staff at that stage in the National Army. His kidnapping, more or less, precipitated the shelling of the four courts. Demoted twice, then after the civil war and and demobilisation, he always expected to be promoted again, and he was quite somewhat bitter about this. From not bitter, but he was he did find it very unfair. Um, but look, I suppose the army's loss is the archives gain, and he did feel that colonel's appointment as officer in charge of the military archives. The records from that time really show him as a dynamic, disciplined, talented character as well, who really more or less single-handedly kind of drove the archives to becoming, you know, something that was a bit more engaged with the wider cultural, historical milieu within the country as well. So it really bloomed for the first time with O'Connell coming in as the first officer in charge. Unfortunately, 1939, World War II breaks out, the emergency declared in Ireland O'Connell is posted, his his skills are required elsewhere, so ostensibly he's looking after the archives, but he doesn't have the time to do it full time. 1944, then, he passes away quite unexpectedly. It was really kind of left to wither on the vine. And then in 1959, following a reorganisation of the Defence Forces, which happens every couple of years, the archives was just completely removed from the establishment of the the Defence Forces.
0: Then, during the 1970s, fortunately, a figure emerges who becomes, I think, synonymous synonymous with the the military archives, and that's Commandant Peter Young. Tell us about his activities and his role in getting the military archives re-established.
1: I suppose, if I could sum it up, it's the the military archives as it is today, as it's regarded, coming out of the decade of centenaries and everything that's contributed, that would not be there if it was not for Peter Young. Peter was a Captain Assistant Press Officer in the Army Intelligence Branch In the late 1970s, when he got to intelligence branch, he realised that there was, there had been an archives in the past and the records were there. I suppose I'd consider it archives with a lowercase a. And he petitioned and fought to have the military archives re-established. And this was a combination of both his ability and his personality that this did come about. Actually, one of the things that really speaks to his dedication for me, something I found in in researching the book was he had served a six-month tour in Unifil headquarters uh, in Lebanon. And on return, he was offered a position, a two-year position as assistant press officer to Timur Goxel, which he refused. And he said, you know, I, I really appreciate the offer, but the, the, the last review for you know, the, the reestablishment of the archives is in progress at the moment. I want to be there to see it." home. Peter remained as the officer in charge of the archives from its reestablishment in 1982 until his unfortunate timely death in 1999 is only 49.
0: So give me an example of his legacy of, of what he was able to uh, to actually do in cooperation uh, as it happens with uh, with other archivists was uh, one
1: of probably the best known archivists mm. in the country uh, Katrina Crow. So the Military Archives is re-established in 1982. 1986, the country has its first piece of archival legislation that it's had since independence, the National Archives Act 1986. And then 1990, the Military Archives is designated a place of deposit under Section 14 of that Act. And what that means is since 1990, we have been the de facto National Archives as far as not only the Defence Forces, the Army, Naval Service, Air Corps, but also the Department of Defence are concerned. And that was a huge, I suppose, boost and a vote of confidence to the military archives.
0: So the Department of Defence's files don't go to the National Archive, they go to you? They do.
1: The legal obligation is for those archives to come to us.
0: Hmm. So tell me about so, his successor, Peter Young's successor, Victor Lang. Uh, so he, he, he's there up until, up, up until 2012. Tell me what, what he managed to achieve.
1: Well, Victor took over just, uh, as soon as Peter passed away. Um, it was 1999 that um, Peter and Katrina Crow petitioned to have the Bureau of Military History Records released from government custody into the public domain. And the, the military archives was designated as the place of deposit for those records as well. So uh, because that's why the, I suppose, the designation as place of deposit ties into what he achieved with Katrina Crowe there. He passes away, but for only two weeks after the announcement that the records are going to be released and come to the military archives. So he never actually got to see this come to fruition, unfortunately. At that stage, the military archives could very well have declined as it had several times in the past. However, Victor Lang, who had been his deputy since the mid-80s, he was there for, for a long time, he took over and Victor really saw to it that the archives survived. If Victor had not been there, there would be no archives as it is today either. So Peter is responsible for it coming back, but Victor is responsible for its survival. Um, I suppose one of the most interesting stories from my research was when there were plans in place to try and find a location for the military archives. One place that was suggested and that was being looked at seriously was the Collins Barracks site, which had been evacuated by the military in the late 90s and the National Museum of Ireland were to to move in. So the idea was the military archives could be co-located there. An interdepartmental committee was established to look at this. However, as the historical records show, I think it was around 2004, 2005, there had been a meeting outside of the committee between it was the Secretary-General of Defence and his counterpart in Culture and Heritage that proposed merging the military archives with the National Archives. So what this would have done was basically removed the place of deposit status and basically, I suppose, dissolved the military archives, which had been, you know, it was hard fought to get it re-established. So Victor Lang then goes back to the Chief of Staff and reports, listen, we need to have somewhere for the military archives within our own real estate, somewhere we can be proud of. And the, the site that Victor suggested was the hospital block from the 1840s in Cattlebrook Barracks which did in 2016 become the new site of the Military Archives Reading Room so tremendous foresight and tremendous advocacy as well from Victor
0: and it is something you can be proud of it's a, a fabulous it's a wonderful reading room and a great facility but i suppose to most people the military archives is about what they can sit down and what they can see on their on their laptop mm. or their home computer uh, that's it's been a great boon of the period of commemoration the centenary the decade of centenaries the digitization project mm. hasn't it
1: It has been. I mean, it's always an interesting one with digitisation. And I'm often asked, and Cecile Shemin, the project manager of the Military Service Pensions Collection, we're often asked, you know, is everything going to be digitised? Digitisation in itself is is an expensive and a a time-consuming process, Mm. as you can see from the, the Military Service Pensions Collection itself. But it has, it's given accessibility to the pension records, and it's also given accessibility to the Bureau of Military History Records, so, um yeah, look, we have a massive, massive amount of resources available on our website, but then again, that is only a fraction of what we have in our repository
0: and that brings me to the future. This is a book about the past, mm-hmm. but to the future and to the the notion of a repository, are there challenges there uh, are you Are you filling up?
1: We actually are probably quite surprising to people. They may have heard the statistic that we have think approximately twenty one linear kilometers of shelving in our repository. However, we've been so successful in meeting the obligations on us to consolidate records within the Defence Forces and the Department of Defence that have been outstanding because of the lack of a a proper purpose-built facility that we estimate now that within three to five years, probably closer to three than five, we will be at 90 to 95% capacity in terms of physical storage. So the next thing we need to address is the building of some kind of a I suppose an offsite storage mm. area specifically for storage to give us you know future proof us for the next 50 years or so because i suppose the vast bulk of records have been and will be consolidated within the next couple of years so it's now future proofing that for the years to come we can't let this be a thing where, you know, we have this great success during the decade of centenaries and it's allowed to mm. kind of ebb, ebb away, you know, as we kind of drift out of it as well. We need to keep the momentum up.
0: And one of the messages of the book is that mm. the military archive over a period of of you know, the guts of 100 years has waxed and waned. It has. And we don't want to see it waning again. Daniel, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the History Show this evening. The book is called The Military Archives, A History, and it's published by Eastwood Books that's all we've time for on this evening's program details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show my thanks tonight to damien chanels on sound and our researcher ian Canelli. the history show is a pegasus production for rte for now from me miles dungan and producer lorcan clancy goodbye and thanks for listening
1: Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.